0: All right, so what we're gonna do this morning, this is, this is a introduction, okay? And uh, we're gonna try every week to read the particular passages we're gonna cover, and we're gonna be in chapter one, verses one through seven this morning. So if you've got your Bible, and I encourage you to bring your Bible, um, we're gonna read that first, and then we're gonna kinda of unpack it. Now, this is the introduction of this letter. This is a letter. And, uh, but it's also a book of prophecy and so it's a pretty interesting book in the Bible, and you're going to see as we dig into it just how interesting it really is. So here's, here's how it begins, verse 1 of chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, <clears throat> even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So that's just the introduction. So you can can already tell this thing's going to be kind of packed. Um, There is so much in this book. And I know in this room this morning, we've got um, a range of of men in terms of why you're here. We've got the end times fanatic, um, the guy who can't get enough end times and, and is obsessed with end times. I don't say that in a derogatory way, but that you just love studying the end times. And you read every book that comes out on the end times and you scan the newspaper and the news for Clues to the end times, okay? You're going to probably be really disappointed. Um, just by the way, we're going to unpack this book, but keep coming. Um, and you're few in number. There's not that many people who are end times fanatics. Uh, they're pretty rare, but they're very fervent. Then there's a the guy that's here, Chris. The book has always scared him to death. He's avoided it like the plague. It's, you, know, you get to the book of Revelation and you just go, mm, no, I'm not, not going there too hard to understand, too mysterious, too scary, too full of doom and gloom, too much judgment for my taste, and you just avoid it. And so you're here to, well, I, I probably need to know something about it. And then there's the guy who showed up and you just forgot we were studying the book of Revelation. Um, so however you came into the room this morning, whatever your perceptions are, my, my request is that you kind of set those aside and come at it with fresh eyes. Just hear what the Lord wants to say to you, uh, not me, but what the Lord wants to say to you through this book, because it's an important book. Now I can't help, but think of this image when I think of the, the book of revelation, because this is the kind of the image that is out there. When you start talking about the end times, the end is near. It's the guy with the gray beard carrying the, the sandwich board. And he's on the street corner and he's screaming that the end is near the end is coming very doom and gloom, very negative. Um, trying to scare people. What I want to let you know is that my approach to this book is going to be very positive because it's a positive book. Even though it's got judgments and plagues and um, all kinds of things taking place in it, at the end of the day, the intention of this book was to encourage you as a believer. Now, if you're not a believer in this room, this book ought to scare the bejeevers out of you. Because it's going to tell you how things end. And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, it does not end well. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it ends particularly well. So I want it to be an encouragement to you. It's not doom and gloom. It's positive. Now, we know if, if you're a reader, if you like books, like I like books, and if you go to any bookstore, if you go online and you type in, you know, End Times or Book of Revelation, you'll get a, a slew of books there's been a lot of books written on this topic, and I'm not going to critique these books, but this is just a few of them. There's the Babylon Code. There's Earth's Last Empire, Your Guide to the Apocalypse, the, the kind of quintessential book, The Late Great Planet Earth, written years ago by Hal Lindsey. There's The Harbinger, written by Jonathan Kahn, which is relatively new. And then there's, I love this title, How to Thrive in the Last Days. Um, there are so many books out there on this topic. And one of the problems I have with most of these books, and I've not read all these books, but the problem I have with them is that they spend a whole lot of time trying to decipher what they see in the book of Revelation and tie it to current events. And, and a lot of guys who are end times fanatics, that's kind of what drives them is that they get up in the morning, they read the newspaper and go, oh, that's chapter 22. Oh, that's chapter 21. Or that's chapter 14. And they try to tie things together because they want to understand what everything means. Now, here's, I'm going to give you an example of how crazy this can get. I just printed this out. This is off a, a Google search. And uh, this is a, a book called Bl- Blood Moon, God's Warning. And in the description, it says, Genesis 1, 14 speaks of the fact that God uses the stars, the sun, the moons for signs and for seasons. This essay, this book will take you on a simple historical and prophetic journey that will enlighten you as to why we may be living in one of the most important years in history, 2014, 2015. Well, oh, wait a minute. This is 2018. Um, and again, I'm not trying to make fun of this book as much as we need to be really careful that we, we are so myopic that we always think it's, it's now. It's got to happen now. We're living in the last days. Well, we've been living in the last days since Jesus Christ left. So we got to be real careful what we do with this. Uh, there was another one I ran across that kind of gives you the same idea. And again, I, I don't say don't read these books. I just think you have to be really careful when you do read these books. So... We've got another book called The Four Blood Moons, and uh, this particular uh, author explores the supernatural connection of certain celestial events to biblical prophecy and to the future of God's chosen people and to the nations of the world. Well, that's, you know, okay, I'm I'm all over that. But the problem is it all has to do with the year 2014, 2015. Again, we're in 2018, and so much of what you'll find in these books has not happened. and So at the end of the day, when we're done with this study in 11 weeks or 10 weeks from now, we're still going to have a lot we don't know. This is a book of mystery. This is a book that reveals, as we're going to see, because that's what the name means, but it doesn't reveal everything. And if God wanted us to know everything that's in this book, he would have just come out and told us, but he's left it to a certain degree wrapped in mystery. So the very name of the book is Revelation in English, but it comes from the Greek apocalypse. Okay, it's a style of literature. So an apocalypse, definition-wise, is a prophetic revelation, especially concerning a cataclysm in which the forces of good permanently triumph over the forces of evil. Now, this is not the only apocalyptic book that was written during this period of time. This is the first century. There were numbers of them that had been written, but they were not included in the canon of Scripture. This one was. But they all have this same basic idea that they're predicting or prophesying the end, the future. So it's an unveiling. That's really what the Greek word means. It's, It's a unveiling of things that have been hidden from man. It's disclosing to you and to me things that God wants us to see. But again... He chose to do it in such a way that it's, it's wrapped in all kinds of mystery. There's lots of visions. There's lots of metaphorical uses in this book. And what we gotta be careful of is that we have to watch how we interpret these and what we do with them and not go too far in trying to make everything match something that we think we see happening in the world around us. Because again, we're 2000 years past when this was written. And yet, most of it's still future. It's not yet happened. We're still waiting. So I love Winston Churchill. He's one of my favorites. Um, And I just finished the the biography of his life, a three-volume, The Last Lion. I just finished the last volume. And he's known for this statement about Russia. Russia is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. And I couldn't help but think of that quote when I thought of the book of Revelation because you could say the same thing about this book. It's very difficult to understand. It's it's an enigma. You read it and you think you understand it and then you start thinking about it and I don't even really know if I know what that means. We're gonna try to the best of our ability to begin to understand what God is trying to say to us through this incredible book. So how does it start out? Well, we just read it. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of John. John did not come up with this. John would have had to have been on mushrooms to come up with this. I mean, when you read this book, I couldn't have come up with any of this. It's fantastical. It's crazy. And so this guy was just the means by which God decided to reveal this to you and I, initially to the seven churches, as we'll see. But it's, it's for us to read. It's for us to know. But it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's the revealer. But as you're going to see, he's what's revealed it's, he's all through the book. He starts out in chapter one and he goes all the way through chapter 22. He is what's the point or the focus of the book. And he's going to disclose to John and ultimately to you and to me, what's going to take place. Now that that may scare you to a certain degree. I don't know that I want to know what's going to take place, or it may totally intrigue you that, man, I, I want to know. So he's going to tell us. And he's going to remain all throughout the book, the main point. And so I want you to remember that. Don't lose sight of Christ as you study this book. Don't get hung up on, you know, well, what does this mean? And what does this mean? And what is it think about Christ? Think about what happens and think about the role that he's going, going to play. Because it, it is the revelation of about Jesus Christ. Now we know Jesus Christ came, right? He came in human form, took on human flesh, lived a human life, lived a sinless human life, died a sinner's death, was buried in a tomb, rose in three days, and then ascended back on high. We know that. But we also know, based on the book of Revelation, that he's coming back. And that's the point. He came, he left, he's coming back. So that's why we study this book. It it wraps up the whole redemptive story. And it comes from God the Father. It's the revelation about Jesus Christ given to us by God the Father. He's the source. He's the one who determined, who decided that, you know what? I want my people to know how this thing ends, thus the title of the series. But in a sense, that's a misnomer because it's really not the end. It's the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning. I'm not sure how you say it. It's gonna end for a lot of people, but it's just the beginning for us. And so it's, it's the start of something incredibly new. But he says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and it's about the things that must soon take place. Now you sit there and go, well, wait a minute. It's 2018, this was written in one, in the first century AD, and they still haven't taken place. What, what is this? Is it a bait and switch? Is it a lie? Is it, why hasn't it happened if it's so, so, supposed to take place soon? Well, here's what you need to understand about this word in the original language. It, it's about time, but it's about a brief space in time. And so the way I understand it, it's about when it begins, when the events in this book begin, they're going to happen really quickly. They're going to come like a mad rush. It's going to be relatively short in duration. And and we know from the book that it's dealing predominantly with the great tribulation, which is only seven years in length. So everything, virtually everything in this book takes place in a seven year period of time. And when you read it and you realize all of this is happening in seven years, it's pretty amazing how much God's going to cram into this. So it's not saying it's going to happen right now, when he says soon, it's that when it begins, it's going to happen really quickly, incredibly fast. And so as we read it, think about the people who are going to be alive at that period of time. Because the things that we're going to be reading are going to be happening one right after other. There's no break. It's just one after the other, after the other. These plagues and, and incredible signs from the heavens and people dying in, by the millions because of the judgment of God. It's going to come nonstop for seven, almost seven years. That's what he's talking about. So it's been revealed to John and it's been given to us, but we have to ask, well, who's John? Well, John, right? I think every guy in the room goes, well, it's John. It's John of the Bible. It's the disciple who Jesus loved. But it's interesting that over the centuries, this has been debated and we're not going to debate it this morning because I believe it's John. I believe it's John the disciple that Jesus chose, that Jesus loved. And he's mentioned four times in the book. He mentions himself. But again, there are people who say, well, it's it's John the Elder. It's John the Anonymous. It's just a guy named John. We have no idea that it's John who wrote the Gospel of John. But I believe it is. I believe it was. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if it's John Smith, John Jones, John the Apostle. It doesn't matter because he's not the point. The point is what he wrote down, but I believe it was him. And we're told in this passage that he was in exile on the Island of Patmos. We know that from verse nine, he says, I'm John, your brother, partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. And I was on the Island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This is why I think it's probably the apostle, because he was, like the rest of the apostles, taking the gospel, spreading the news of Jesus Christ, his resurrected state, his ascension on high. He was telling this everywhere he went, and he ended up, because of Dionysius, the uh, emperor of Rome, he ended up imprisoned on the island of Patmos. And it's there that he gets this account. And and again, you got to get into his sandals and just kind of imagine what this was like as we dig into this, what this guy's going to see and what he's going to be shown by God about end times events. He's going to be taken to heaven. He's going to see heaven. And then he's going to have the uh, unenviable task of trying to describe what he sees. And part of the reason this book is so difficult to understand is because it's a man, a human trying to see things that nobody's ever seen and using human language to describe it. And he just, he's at a loss for words and it becomes incredibly difficult. But all throughout the book, it's, it it was like this, it was like this. And he's just doing the best job he can to describe things that are basically indescribable. I don't envy him. It wasn't easy, but he did it. He accomplished the goal and it's written to, Verse four, the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, why these seven churches, I have no idea. And every commentator I've read, every book I've looked at, they don't have any idea either. They have a lot of thoughts, they have a lot of opinions, but nobody really knows why God chose these seven churches. But he did. And he chose seven, and seven's going to come up over and over again in this book because it is a number that represents completeness, wholeness, perfection. So it's these seven churches. We don't know why, but it's the number seven because they represent all churches of all time. There were a lot more churches at this time when he wrote this. But God, in his wisdom, chose these particular churches. And I think he probably chose them because they represented and had within them some particular attributes that he wanted to point out that were representative of all the churches at that day and are representative of all churches of this day. But seven churches, and here they are you got Pergamum, you got Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Smyrna, and Ephesus. And they're all within a pretty close geographic range. And they're all on what are essentially Roman trade roads, trade routes. And so they got a lot of commerce. They were pretty important to the Romans. And right off the coast, you see the little island of Patmos where John is writing this letter. And it's going to get circulated to these churches. And we know because of the way all the gospels and all the letters of Paul and, they, they would end up going to other churches. So they didn't just end there. They were the original audience, but they ended up going to other churches and now we have it today all these years later. It's for anybody who is a believer in Jesus Christ. Every Christian, that's, this book is for you. And it's important for us to understand that because this book, as we read, comes with a blessing. I know of no other book in scripture that comes with a blessing if you read it which is why I wanted to read it, because I want to get blessed. It, it, it blesses those who read it. It blesses those who hear it. You just got blessed. You may not feel like it, but according to God, he promises to bless you. I don't know how. I don't know what that's going to look like, but he's going to bless you, because you just heard this book read. And then he says, you're blessed if you obey it, if you listen to it and obey it. So it comes with a blessing, which is pretty significant written to these seven churches, and he says, you're blessed if you read it, you're blessed if you hear it, and keep it. Why? Because again, the time is near. We just said, well, it's not immediately, but it's going to happen quickly. But all throughout this book, you're going to see that there is an encouragement to every one of you as believers to live with a sense of anticipation. Even though thousands of years have gone by, All these churches are long gone. Ephesus, Thyatira, Pergamum, they're gone. The people in them are gone. We are supposed to live expectantly that any day the Lord could return. Because from God's perspective, as we know from scripture, a day is like a thousand years, or a thousand years like a day. See his time, he does not live by time. God's not encapsulated by time. We are, but God, this is gonna happen and it's gonna happen sooner than you think. My dad, most of you guys know this, my dad died four years ago and uh, he was a pastor. He was my pastor all the years I was growing up. And he lived on the east side of Fort Worth and in his backyard, he built a little arbor, little covered arbor, and there was a swing that hung from it and it faced the east. And every morning he would go out there before sunrise and he would pray until the sun came up. Why why would he have his prayer arbor facing east? What's going to happen in the east? Well, that's where the Lord's going to return. The Bible tells us he'll come from the east. So my dad lived in constant anticipation that the Lord was going to return. My dad died four years ago. The Lord didn't return. But he was there every morning. Rain, sun, shine, snow, sleet, Hail. I mean, he was out there. That's expectancy. That's, that's a perception that every one of us to have is that it could happen any day. And you should want it to happen. The older I get, the more I want it to happen. This last, last week on my day off Monday, my wife informed me that our toilet upstairs was not working. I would rather have a stick jammed in my eye than work on a toilet, okay? So I go up there and I knew what was gonna happen. It should have been a 15 minute job. It turned into two hours of living hell. And I was so frustrated, I was so angry and I was so ready for the Lord to return, you know? See, we live in a world that's screwed up. We live in a world that's fallen, and we should live with a sense of urgency and immediacy. Lord, come back. Every time you read the newspaper, every time you turn on your your computer and and you see the news or you're listening to the news and you, you see what's going on around you, rather than despair, you should hope for the return of Christ because this thing ends really well for us, and that's the point of the book. I love Chuck Swindoll because he writes... For guys like me, common, average, everyday guys. Listen to what he says about this book. No book of the Bible has evoked greater fascination or has led to more controversy than Revelation. Its profound mysteries, elusive symbolism, powerful predictions, and colorful language are unparalleled in the rest of Scripture. Attempts attempts to interpret its details have spanned the extremes from the sublime to the ridiculous. I fully agree. Throughout my life of ministry, I've seen the book of Revelation drive fanatics to set dates for the return of Christ, frighten believers who find themselves overwhelmed by its judgments and wrath, and turn off skeptics who already think the Bible is filled with indecipherable nonsense. You're probably in one of those three groups, okay? But see, it's not meant to scare you. It's not meant to depress you. It's meant to encourage you because it's telling you your God's in control. God is sovereign. But here's the deal we got to cover this morning that's really important for the rest of the weeks that we're gonna be together. There's a lot of ways to interpret this book and they've been developed over centuries. There's a lot of arguments about this book that have taken place over centuries, but there's four basic interpretive modes used to interpret the book of Revelation. The first one is called the preterist view. Now, don't get hung up on these. These are in your notes. You can go back and look at them, but I'm just gonna tell you what the four are. and I'm gonna tell you the one we're gonna use. The preterist view is pretty easy. It's pre, before, and it's basically everything's already happened. It's it's a past tense view of looking at this book. So basically all the events in this book have already taken place. There's nothing future about it. We are not going down that road. Okay? I don't see it that way, and I'm not alone. We as a church don't see it that way. The second one is, it's the historical view, which is kind of similar. It's, it's a looking back into the past. It's looking at history, but it's just a, it's a picture of ongoing history. But it's not really future. It's not prophetic. So it's just history of the church. Now, what's interesting about this, when we look next week at the seven churches That he's writing to, what this particular camp will do is they'll take those seven churches and they'll try to link them to certain periods of time of church history. So the first church they look at is the early church formed after Pentecost. And then they'll just go through the timeline and they'll take the history of the church up until now and they'll say, well, this is the period of the Reformation. And this is the period after the Reformation, and this is the period of this and this. Well, the problem with that is we're still not done with history, right? Well, we're already out of seven churches. What about the rest? So, this particular view, we're not going to use. The third one is the idealistic view, the idealist, who looks at it as nothing but symbolism. This is the easy way to interpret the book of Revelation it's just all symbols, it's not real. It means nothing in the sense that none of this is really going to happen. It's symbolic. It's just the battle between good and evil put in metaphorical terms. We are most certainly not going down that that road. Okay, Here's what we're going to do. It's called the futurist view. It's literal and prophetic. Now, literal doesn't mean that everything in here is real like dragons. We We don't believe that, but we do believe that that symbol represents something very real and it's going to take place. And this is a prophetic book that is looking at the future because most of this book, chapter four, all the way to chapter 22 has yet to be fulfilled. That's our belief. This is how we're going to look at this book. And that's going to be really important to understanding it as far as I'm concerned. So it's the view we're going to take because it's the view that we hold as a church We see chapters 4 through 22 as future. They've yet to take place. They're out there in the distant future or maybe the not so distant future. And this book has yet to be fulfilled. So come at it with that viewpoint. You may not agree with that viewpoint, and I'm okay with that. what I ask you to do is not break out into a fist fight at your table. Okay? (laughs) And if somebody doesn't agree with your particular view, that's okay. Talk about it graciously share your view and discuss it, but just know that this is the way we're gonna come at it. If you wanna know the outline of the book, and this is how we're gonna do it, is it's in verse 19 of chapter one, here's what it says. Write therefore, John, these things, the things that you've seen, one, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. This is the outline for the entire book. Here's how it breaks down. The things that you have seen is chapter one. Remember, he gets this vision write down this vision, write down what you've just seen. He says, write those things that are things that are going on in the first century in those seven churches, chapters two and three. And then he says, and those that are to take place after this chapters four through 22. So the vast majority of the book is what? The things that are going to take place. So write what you've seen, write to the seven churches, and then Write down everything that's going to take place. So, here's my disclaimers. You got to have disclaimers. Here's my first one. We're going to take a premillennial view. What the heck is that? You'll find out. We're premillennial in our theology. So, we're going to take a pre-millennial, premillennial view. And you'll understand that further as we go along. Secondly, we're going to include the rapture. We believe in the rapture of the church. Well, wait a minute. I've read the book of Revelation. The rapture is not in the book of Revelation. You are correct. And it's not in the Revelation because the church isn't in the book of Revelation. The church is already gone. We believe the church gets removed from this earth and we'll dig into that later, but it gets removed and that's when the tribulation starts. Okay, so just so you know, going into it, I'm not gonna set any dates. I have no idea when the Lord's gonna return. I have not bought land in West Texas, okay? We're not all going to go out there and live in a commune and wait for the Lord to return. I have no idea when this is going to happen. We're not going to look at current events. I'm not going to bring the newspaper up every day and go, see, look, here it is. Putin's the Antichrist. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to tell you who the Antichrist is. You know why? Because I don't know who the Antichrist is. And I don't care who the Antichrist is. I had a guy come up to me Tuesday when I taught it on the West Campus, and he said, hey, I've heard the Antichrist is artificial intelligence. This stuff drives me crazy. We don't know who the Antichrist is. I don't know if the Antichrist is alive yet. I don't know if it's gonna be a man, a woman. I don't know, and I don't really care. We're not gonna tell who the Antichrist is because what? He doesn't tell us who the Antichrist is, so why would I? We don't know. But I love this, that God sets the stage for John and he tells him, hey, John, remember, this is from me. He who is, who was, and who is to come, God. Now, look at this really closely. This never struck me until I started really studying this. Look at the sequence. God describes himself as who is, who was, and who is to come. He's all out of sequence, No, you're who was, who is, and who is to come. What's wrong with you? Why do you think he put it in this sequence? Here's what I think. Notice what comes first. He is the God who is. Here's what I know about me. I have no trouble believing what I read in the Old Testament. I believe God created the earth in just six days. I believe in all the stories of Joan and the whale. I believe those things. I believe in the crossing of the Red Sea, the miraculous cross. I believe those things. Don't have any problem with it. The things that were. I have no trouble believing this book of Revelation, the things that are going to happen. They're fantastic, but I believe them. You know where I struggle believing? Is that he's he's alive and well right here, right now in my life. The God who is. See, my God is... uh, in the past or he's in the future. But the problem is I need my God to be right here, right now. And I think that's why God described himself first to John as I am the God who is right now because the churches he's writing to are all going through persecution. Don't give up. Don't lose hope. I got it handled. I'm the God who was, but I'm also the God who will be. I've got you in my hands And that's what I want you to hear when he speaks to you through this book, is that your God, regardless of what you're going through, is the God who is. He's in control. He's sovereign over all things, including your life. He also says that this is from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and we'll look at that in just a second, and Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So basically, God is telling John, the whole Trinity is speaking to you. This is the triune God, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit speaking to John. And they're going to be all throughout this book. You're going to see the Trinity all throughout the book of revelation. The father, him who is, who was, and is to come the spirit, which is the seven spirits who are before his throne and the son, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the Kings of the earth. Now, there are some who would say, yeah, but that's not what this means. The seven spirits are not, Jesus, are, are not the Holy Spirit. They're the seven pastors or the seven elders or the seven angels of the church. I'm not going to go into great detail about this, but the vast majority of, of commentators that I've looked at all agrees that, that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. The number seven again represents perfection, represents completeness, represents wholeness. So it's a picture of the wholeness, completeness, perfection of the Spirit of God. So you have God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and you have Jesus Christ, the Son. And where we get this from is from this passage in Isaiah eleven two, 2, where we're given seven attributes of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what it says. The Spirit of God shall rest upon him, Jesus. The Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, godliness, and fear of God. Seven attributes. So we believe this passage is talking about the triune God, the Trinity, before John, as he prepares to listen and see these incredible things. And all throughout the book, you're going to hear this message from the Trinity. Coming from God's throne and couched in grace and peace. Why is that important? Now, grace and peace, if you go back and read the letters of Paul, they almost always have those two words. They're part of the, the salutation of all, his, all of his letters. But why is it important in this context as we get ready to open up this book? Here's why. Why? What does the word grace mean? It means the favor and kindness of God, which is really kind of interesting because if you've read ahead, which I hope you have, you see a lot of wrath. You see a lot of judgment. You see a lot of harsh things taking place by the power of God, and yet he tells us as believers, it's all about my grace, my favor. See, we have the favor of God. I have nothing to fear from this book. Neither do you if you're in Christ. It's about peace security, safety, tranquility of soul. This book should bring you peace. Why? Because you're in Christ because you're on the winning side. So he opens it up saying grace and peace from God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy spirit. And the whole book is dedicated to Jesus Christ. Why? Because without Jesus Christ, this book does not exist without Jesus Christ. The end will not come. And I've said this to you guys before, I love the fact that Jesus Christ took on human flesh, lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death, was put in a grave, rose again the third day, ascended on high. But if that's how the story ended, I am in deep trouble because it doesn't get me what I really need, eternity. He's got to come back. He's got to return. He's got to make all things right because this world is drenched in sin and unrighteousness and it's got to be corrected. So he's going to be the focus of the whole thing. And he's described as the one who loves us. Ephesians 5, 2, Christ loved us and gave himself for us. That should bring you hope. That should bring you joy. He's freed us from our sins by his blood. Had he not come and died, you would still be in sin. And we know that from Ephesians 1 you would still be enslaved. He made us a kingdom. He made us priests to God. You, regardless of how you feel about yourself this morning, that is who you are. You're a priest to God. You are special in God's eyes, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. So this book is written to you and it's meant to encourage you, not depress you. It's not meant to confuse you. It's meant to give you an understanding that your God in his triune nature has everything under control. And here's the key. Jesus Christ is coming. He's coming in the clouds. And that ought to really thrill you to the core. He is coming back. When? I don't know. But it's gonna tell me how. It's gonna describe it for me. We know from Jesus slips himself. Listen to what he says in his own words. And it ties directly into what we're going to look at in the book of Revelation. Immediately after the tribulation, what we're going to study of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven, the sign of the son of man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's what's going to happen. That's what we're going to see in this book. And we know from Daniel chapter seven, With the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man. See, we're going to be looking at Revelation, but we're going to look at Daniel. We're going to look at Isaiah. We're going to look at Jeremiah, because if you don't have the book of Revelation, you don't understand any of those books. You can't understand the the visions of Daniel without the book of Revelation. It completes the picture. It wraps the story up. And it says that when Christ returns, there will be wailing. Why? I'm not going to be wailing. I'm going to be with him. And the same is true of you. Who's going to be wailing? Well, it's going to be all those who reject him. And we're told that he's going to pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on him, Jesus, on him whom they've pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him. Not In salvation, there will be Jews who come to faith in Christ during the tribulation, but the vast majority will still remain unrepentant. It's amazing as you read this book, you're gonna see God winning people to Christ, bringing them to salvation, but there will be millions upon millions who keep turning their backs. In spite of the judgment, in spite of the signs, they'll still keep rejecting God and rejecting his son. This book is filled with grace. And people still reject it. And it's all about Jesus. I know I keep saying that, but I don't want you to forget it. It begins with him. It ends with him. And the whole book is a preface to him coming back, which is the most exciting point in history, human history, I love what Daniel Akin says in his commentary. I believe the theme of the book could be described as the majesty and glory of the warrior lamb, King Jesus, who is coming again to rule and to reign on this earth. He's coming and he's going to do it. And he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That's what God says of himself. And it's what Jesus Christ says of himself as the son of God. God speaks of himself, but it's really the revealing of who his son is. See, I call this thing the end because that's what it is. It's the end of life as we know it. But it's the beginning of new life. It's the beginning of a new creation. Genesis was the beginning and the beginning was God. Revelation is the end. Here's how it ends. And then he's going to restore all things. And God gives his credentials he describes himself as eternal. He lets him know I'm in charge. I have all the power in the world. Look at what I'm about to do. And he's going to show him incredible things that are beyond his capacity to understand and almost beyond his capacity to describe, but it's all part of God's plan. And here's the plan. Jesus Christ is coming back. Behold, I'm coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I'm the alpha and omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. See, he says, I'm coming back and I'm going to bring recompense. That's That's a word that should scare you if you're not in Christ. If you're in Christ, it shouldn't worry you in the least because you have nothing to fear. Your sins are taken care of. You are righteous in the eyes of God. You're a special possession of God. So nothing to fear. So what is it? Mean? What does it all reveal? Really quickly, it's meant to encourage. It's to remind you of God's grace and peace. It's guaranteed by the Trinity, the Godhead in its completeness. It comes with a blessing if you read it, if you hear it, if you obey it. And it tells you how the story ends. And here's how it ends. He's coming on the clouds. That's where we're going. So for the next 10 weeks, guys, this is what we're going to dig into. But for the next few minutes, here's what I want you to do around your table. Three questions, pretty basic. First of all, I want you to share what your perception was of the book of Revelation when you walked in the room. And it's probably not changed, but just, I wasn't real excited about it. It scares me to death. I find it boring. I find it, whatever it is, or I'm intrigued by it, share that just for a few minutes. Then God's promises of grace and peace are to you if you read it. So how do you think that's gonna show up? I can tell you in the last almost a year now that I've been studying it, I have seen God's blessing in my life in spite of the toilet. (laughs) I've I've been blessed by God from having read and studied this book, and I continue to be. How do you think that's gonna show up in your life? And then verse three, it says the time is near, and yet here we are thousands of years later. Why is it important that you and I as believers live with a sense of expectancy? And how do we begin to do that? So let me pray for you, and then you're going to have discussion around your tables, and then you can go off to work. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these men. Thank you for the book of Revelation. Father, I pray that you would bring every one of these guys back next week, ready to hear what you have to say, not what I have to say. Lord, I'm grateful for the opportunity to teach this, but I I really want you to be the one who speaks. And so bless the time around the tables. May they be gracious to one another. May they be kind. And may, Father, they encourage one another in their walk as they hear the words spoken to John. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name, amen.